Good afternoon. Uh, it's good to see everybody here. Uh, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors at Zoe Community Church. If you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you. We're glad you're here. Uh, I don't know if you follow us on Facebook, probably not, but it was a, an exciting week for us because uh, we got our Facebook account deactivated. I know you check all the time, so a lot of people were worried. Um, but the reason why, I didn't even know until Eric texted me, but it's because they detected unusual traffic because uh, I posted about how, actually someone posted about how we're starting a new series um, and then people were trying to guess what it was. And there were a lot of good guesses. Um, I'm glad people are excited about the Bible. And that's kind of what I want. You know, I want people to be excited about the next book we get into. I want to spotlight every book and make sure that it gets kind of the the acclaim and the attention that it deserves. Um, and people were guessing, you know, Revelation. And uh, we're not doing that, okay? Maybe in the future. Uh, we might do that soon. Um, but someone did guess, and you are here. I saw you earlier. They guessed the correct book uh, that we were going through. So uh, drum roll, just kidding. Um, the series we are beginning today is called East of Eden. That's what we're calling it. And the book that we're going through is the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you could open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, it's right around the middle of the Bible. It's after the Psalms and the Proverbs. Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at verse 1 today of chapter 1. At Zoe, our conviction is to preach through whole books of the Bible. And the thought process behind that is we want God to set the agenda. Okay, not necessarily what I'm into or what the other pastors are into or what's popular right now or what's trendy. Our commitment is to go book by book, verse by verse. And so far in our short history, we've gone through a few books now. We started with the book of Ephesians, and then we did the book of Ruth, which was really good. Uh, one of my favorite books. We looked at Malachi. Uh, not a lot of people were here for that. Um, that was a while back. We did Matthew. It took us two and a half years. We did Habakkuk. We did Titus. We did First and Second Samuel. We did Jude most recently. And now we begin Ecclesiastes. And today we're going to introduce the book, and we're going to do that by just looking at one verse, like I said. But let me read the first verse and the second verse so you get a little taste of what this book is going to be like. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 and 2. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together as we begin. Father, we come before you and we come to your holy word. And Ecclesiastes is a different kind of book. God, in many ways, it's confusing to us. In many ways, it's different than what we expect or what we've come to learn to expect from your word. And yet we know, Father, that you have inspired it, God, that you have placed it in your holy word for a reason, God, and that there is much in it that can teach us and instruct us and train us in righteousness. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray, God, that you would use this book powerfully in the lives of the people of our church and even people who are visiting and whoever happens to be here. God, I pray that you would do what only you can do, God, and I pray that you would completely redirect the course of our lives toward you. God, we need your help for this, so we look to you. We look to the one that you sent, who is our 
life and rest and joy and peace, Jesus Christ. And we pray that even though Ecclesiastes doesn't explicitly mention him by name, that this book would lead us right to him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. When Rosie was a kid, about nine years old, uh, she started asking her dad all these why questions. And if you have kids, you kind of know how this goes, right? Why can't I have my own room? Why can't I have a cookie before dinner? Why does my brother or my sister do this, do that? Why do, why can't I stay home from school? Why, why, why? One night, Rosie was especially relentless with her questioning. So her dad, his name is Matt, and I'll call him that a few times. He said, look, I'm working right now. Um, I do want to answer your questions, but why don't you write them down on a piece of paper and give them to me, and then I'll look at them later, and then I'll get back to you. And he expected her to forget about it or, or to drop it because who's going to write down all these questions? He thought maybe she'd write down one or two max and then maybe doodle on the paper. But then, to his surprise, she handed him back this single sheet of paper filled with questions. There are about 50 different questions she wanted answers to. The very first question was, what is life? So he was like, oh my gosh. It went on, what happens when we die? Why is there a heaven and a hell? What is time? What is love? 50 questions just like this. Now, this wasn't what Matt was was expecting at all, but he took these questions very seriously. And you kind of have to understand uh, a little bit about who he is. So Matt, he's her dad, but he's also a professor at West Point. You guys know West Point? So think about the kind of person who would be an instructor at the U.S. Military Academy. He's a serious guy. He's a learned guy. So what did he do? He, he didn't dismiss the questions. He didn't just shoot from the hip with fluff answers. No, he set to work researching every single question. Okay, he started to study. He read Camus. He read Augustine. He studied theoretical physics and theories of time. He spent weeks, sometimes months, on a single question. And when he felt ready to answer uh, the next one or whatever question he was on, he would try to explain his findings to Rosie. But here's what he found. While it's not necessarily easy, it's already hard, right, to explain complex things to a child. What he found as he started to study these big questions, these hard questions, was he didn't really understand what these things were himself. What is love? What is time? What is the meaning of life. Now, have you ever been asked a question that you didn't really know the answer to? I mean, I use the example of kids, and I use that example right here. I mean, some of you, your kids are growing up, and they started to ask you harder questions. They don't take your pat answers anymore. They don't accept because I said so. They know that you only got B's in college or whatever. They know you're not a genius. I mean, we get it, parents, and I'm in for probably even more of this. But there are certain kinds of questions that aren't just difficult. They're uncomfortable. And you don't have to be a parent to have to face some of these questions. Maybe you know someone who disagrees with everything you believe. Maybe it was a roommate in college. Maybe someone that you met randomly at church, and they just keep talking to you about certain things that they disagree with. And the whole thing about this disagreement is it's not really about curiosity. They're not asking you questions because they want to know your opinion or your thoughts. They're asking you pointed questions because they want to challenge you. They want to change your mind. They want you to have some doubt about what you believe to be true. Or maybe you're the one with questions. 
Maybe you have all of these thoughts that you bring to church or you bring to your marriage or whatever it might be, but you keep them to yourself or you try to because you know by experience that it doesn't go that well. You start asking these hard questions and then people kind of pull away from you. They don't like it. They start to try to debate you. And maybe you're genuinely just wondering what the answers are. You don't know yourself. But you feel like you can't ask. You're kind of worried deep down that maybe there aren't any answers or at least any good ones. Because here's the issue. It's one thing to know, quote unquote, the answers to certain questions, to read, to have prepared responses in case someone asked you a difficult question about life or God or meaning. But it's quite another thing to be fully convinced in the marrow of your bones that what you believe is actually true. Doubt is often frowned upon in evangelicalism, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. How's the saying go? Right. For example, God is good all the time and all the time God is good. Yes and amen. It's absolutely true. We affirm that. I preach it. You guys know it. If I asked you, is God good? Yes or no, true or false, you would answer correctly 100% of the time. But if we're honest, how come it often doesn't seem like it? Let's just be real. I pray and the same things happen as when I don't pray. I Uh, turn on the news or go on Twitter and I see in the place of righteousness, wickedness. And if I think about it too hard, it really starts to bother me. How could this be happening in a world where God is sovereign as we sang and he's good? And then there are some things I know are good. At least I think I know that they're good. The salvation of my children. Why wouldn't God want that? The healing of my friend with cancer, the physical health to be able to serve in church or to build relationships with people or even to take care of my family. And yet these things have been denied me for some reason. And if I think too hard about why, then everything starts to crumble inside of me. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes is a book of questions. And not just any questions, okay, but the most difficult questions of life. In fact, it would be more accurate to say that it's a book that questions. It's a book that challenges. And read by itself, it would be understandable for you to wonder why this is even in the Bible. I mean, it seems to challenge and even contradict so much of what is written even elsewhere in the Word of God. It's why Ecclesiastes is sometimes called the most dangerous book of the Bible. In fact, someone told me just recently when I said, we're going to teach Ecclesiastes, I said, oh yeah, my friend, uh, that was one of the last things my friend read before they fell away from the faith. So I was like, okay, well, now we're definitely going to preach it. Now, stay with me here. It doesn't mean that you're going to fall away from the faith, but we have to recognize what we're dealing with. It is a dangerous book. I'm not saying it's not. I've also heard people call it the most depressing book of the Bible. People like to avoid it. They say only read it if you're a pessimist. They say it all, all it talks about is the vanity of life, how meaningless everything is, how we just toil under the sun, how everything we care about is just chasing after the wind, and then we die, and who cares? And even when I was studying this, so we have another book planned after this. We're trying to get ahead because the next book is very difficult. And uh, Eric's been reading it a lot, and he was asking me, what do you think about this verse, or what do you think about this issue? And I had been reading Ecclesiastes this whole time, and I kind of found myself thinking, who cares? Are we even going to be alive then? Like, <laughs> This too is vanity, Eric. Now, there's some element of truth to these takes, 
Ecclesiastes does speak of the vanity of so much of what we live for. It does want us to be disillusioned even of the things that we should be disillusioned by. The book is not happy-go-lucky by any means. The book is not super positive, Joel Osteen, your best life now. But Ecclesiastes is only a dangerous book or even a depressing feeling book because at its heart, it's an honest book. It's an honest book. The author, Herman Melville, he wrote Moby Dick. He said it was the truest of all books. Another author, Thomas Wolfe, he said Ecclesiastes is the single greatest piece of writing I have ever known. Why? He said, for all I have ever seen or learned, this book seems to me the noblest, the wisest, and the most powerful expression of man's life upon this earth. Ecclesiastes is what happens when earth feels disconnected from heaven. That's why it feels disconnected from the rest of the Bible sometimes. Ecclesiastes is a book that takes an unblinking look at the harshness of life under the sun. Ecclesiastes is a masterpiece that gives eloquence to the doubts and struggles and longings of our hearts. Really, the doubts and struggles and longings we will all experience at some point, the doubts and struggles and longings we don't express or feel like we can't express in a church setting. Sometimes in church, questions are discouraged. Just trust, just believe, just walk by faith. And yes and amen to that, you should walk by faith and not by sight. But here we have a book that takes the most honest look at the human experience. All of the pain, hopelessness, apathy, envy, disillusionment, It looks at the search for the most elusive thing in this vain world, joy. And yet, even after it shows us these things, it points us to the way forward. So today we're going to introduce this book with the first verse. We'll break this up into three points based on kind of the three parts of the first verse. First, the argument. If you're taking notes, the argument. What kind of book is this? What kind of book is this? Look at verse 1. The words of the preacher. Okay, you could stop there. The words of the preacher. It's a message. Okay, that's what Ecclesiastes is. You could even call it a sermon. And not every book, uh, not every book in the Bible is written this way. Not every book is a sermon in written form. You got to understand that even though the Bible is one book and we have it bound in one volume, and there is an amazing unity to the, to the Bible. There is one single arching, overarching storyline. There is one person that the book points to, Jesus Christ. It is also 66 books written over the course of centuries. So again, there's two aspects to scripture. There's an amazing unity, but there's also a wide variety of subject matter and theme and approach. We have detailed accounts of history. We looked at First and Second Samuel. There are letters written to specific churches and people at certain times. That's why we did Titus. We did Jude. There are books that focus specifically on Jesus and what he did. We went through Matthew. We have poetry. We have prophecy. We have whatever revelation is. Okay, I know what it is. It's apocalyptic literature mixed with prophecy, and it's also in the form of a letter. So it's kind of a beast, no pun intended. My point is, though, the Bible is a vast collection. And here at Zoe, we try to mix it up. So here's a hint for you next time we want to break the internet. We try to switch up between Old Testament and New Testament when we go through books. Okay, we try to switch off between different genres when we go through the books. 
So we've gone through history. We've gone through a letter most recently. It's time to focus on Ecclesiastes. Now, what kind of book is Ecclesiastes? It's the words of the preacher. It's a lesson. And within the canon of Scripture, it's categorized as a book of wisdom. Now, there are a few wisdom books in the Old Testament. And you could argue in the New Testament as well. But in the Old Testament, the main wisdom book that most people are familiar with is the book of Proverbs, right? And Proverbs is a book of Proverbs, okay? It's aptly titled. And a proverb is a pithy saying that that teaches you how to live well. So people love that book because you open it up. You can go to any verse and it'll give you some guidance for your life. For example, Proverbs 16.3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. It's pretty helpful. Right? Just give your work to God and he will establish it. Or, or Proverbs 28, 6. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. That gives you some actionable advice. It's better to be poor and have some character than to be rich and to be a sleazeball. Okay? It helps you reset your mind and your focus for the day or your life, whatever. Many Christians love the Proverbs because they're helpful. And while they aren't promises, they still give you something, some direction to go in the next step. Now, Ecclesiastes is also a wisdom book alongside Job. But the thing about Ecclesiastes is it seems to have a very different perspective than Proverbs. They're right next to each other in the Bible, but this doesn't, they don't seem like they belong together. So even the Proverbs I just read, right? Uh, Proverbs 16, commit your work to the Lord. Everything will go well. Ecclesiastes says, what do you gain from all your toil? You're just going to die and other people are going to take your stuff. Doesn't really matter. Or the proverb that says it's better to be poor and have integrity than rich and have none. But Ecclesiastes 7 says, be not overly righteous. This is in the Bible. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? I don't know if you've read Ecclesiastes recently, but there are a lot of verses where you say, what? Uh, this is surely have to, this, this, this has to be a mistranslation of the Hebrew or something. Cause I can't believe this is in the Bible. And this is why so many people avoid Ecclesiastes. It doesn't seem to fit. It, it's more than rough around the edges. It seems to be an outlier when it comes to the scripture. In some parts, uh, and this is weird. In some parts, it actually sounds like the Proverbs. So in some ways, it doesn't even fit with itself sometimes. So you might read in, in Ecclesiastes something about how it's better to be wise than to not be wise. And you think, well, don't you just, aren't you just contradicting yourself from a previous chapter? In one chapter, it says nothing matters. And another is giving me advice. What's the deal with this book? What's the deal with this preacher? Well, in Hebrew, the word for preacher in verse one is the word koheleth. Okay, now, if you read a commentary on, on Ecclesiastes, they'll bring up this term a lot. Koheleth, Q-O-H-E-L-E-T-H. You don't got to remember that, but I might refer to it again, Koheleth. And it's translated preacher here. Some translations translate it differently. But basically, it shares the same root as the Hebrew word for a congregation or an assembly. And in the Greek translation, and then the later Latin translation of the Bible, They call this book Ecclesiastes because ecclesia, the word for church or assembly, is the same word. Okay, so Ecclesiastes, you might have noticed it it sounds like ecclesia. It's because this has to do with an assembling, a congregation, a preacher who wants to give a message to a group of people. These are the words of someone who has something to say. 
He has a message for people. He wants them to hear something important. He wants to make an argument, make a case. And this is partially why Ecclesiastes is so different. He actually tries to challenge us at the deepest level right away. He wants us to rethink even the things that we've read already in the Bible. He tackles things head on. He knows the questions people have. He wants to make us think. And so this book is written in a way that's intended to elicit some sort of reaction from us. To be kind of scared by it or to be discouraged or depressed or to want to turn the page to something else. We're supposed to do a double take at some of the stuff in here. I mean, listen again to how the, the, the argument, the sermon of Ecclesiastes starts. Look at verse two. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word for vanity in Hebrew is the word hevel, okay, H-E-V-E-L. This is a key word. We'll talk about it more next week. Hevel, some translations, most translations say vanity. Some say meaningless. If you have the NIV, it'll say meaningless. Literally, what it means is vapor or smoke or breath, something like that. It's something that, that's there for an instant, and then it evaporates. Hevel is something that when you reach out for it to try to grab it, even though you saw it for a second, it disappears. It's something that doesn't last, that doesn't have substance. The preacher says that everything is vanity. Everything is hevel. Everything is a soap bubble that just bursts and evanesces into thin air. So can you imagine coming to church, coming to the congregation, coming to the assembly, and the preacher is there and he's preaching these words. And then afterwards, right, you're hanging out and you're getting a donut or something and coffee. And he comes up to you and he says, how's everything going? How's life? And start sharing. You share about your kid's basketball team, how your son is really improving these days. Uh, he's putting in the work. He, he's starting now. And you talk about how work is stressful. You've been putting in uh, extra hours, though. And you've been going back to school so that you can get a promotion later. And then you're talking about how you finally got around to landscaping a little bit and how your yard's finally looking pretty good. The HOA is off your back. Then you're talking about how you watched this new show and it's pretty good. And you try this new restaurant that you and your family like. And you can't wait to go on vacation for spring break or winter break or whatever. And he just looks at you and he says, okay, but can you tell me about something that actually matters? And how would you feel if he said that? This is how Ecclesiastes begins. The preacher takes us on a journey of deconstruction, but not of Christianity, a deconstruction of our lives. He wants us to rethink what our lives are all about. Your kid plays basketball. That's cool. Is he going to make the NBA? Even if he is, he's going to be a bench player. Even if he is a starter, even if he is the best player who ever lived, he's going to grow old, his knees are going to go bad, he's going to retire, people are going to forget about him, and then he's going to die. That's how Ecclesiastes is. Ecclesiastes 2, 16 and 17, hear this. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. You're running as fast as you can. Who cares if you're as fast as Usain Bolt? Because at the end, all you caught was nothing. So can you imagine coming to church and you meet this guy and he says something like that to you? Tell me more about your vain, useless, pointless life. Your striving existence that doesn't mean a thing. Even if you get a promotion, your company would replace you in a week if you got hit by a car. Landscaping. It's all going to burn in the end. New show, 
restaurants. What are you even talking about? What's the point of your vain life? Now, I'm not going to say this to you afterwards, but if this, if you're thinking about this and it makes you feel a little bit defensive, maybe offended, that's kind of the point. I mean, he would challenge me too. And there's more to his argument than this, but this is the preacher's opening salvo. He wants you to think about all the things that are so important to you. And he wants you to really question, are they important at all? And this isn't a bad thing. It's not bad to be challenged sometimes. We settle into patterns of complacency. It's not often that we question the things we do, the things we spend our lives on. We're all moving forward. Time doesn't slow down for any of us. But we are we heading toward a destination that actually matters? If we're not, I mean, wouldn't we want someone to tell us? You know, I was reading this story this past week, or maybe it was two weeks ago. Uh, it was um, this guy named John Little. And he was friends with Bruce Lee back in the day. And he was talking about how they used to go running. Okay, so you guys know who Bruce Lee is. He's like a martial art guy or whatever. They would train together and they would go running. They would always do three miles. And Bruce Lee was pretty fit. So they would try to run pretty fast. They would try to run it in 21 minutes, he said. But he said, this particular day, Bruce Lee said, how about we run five? And John Little was a little older. He wasn't as uh, in good shape. So he said, I don't think I can do five. Let's Let's just do our normal three. And then Bruce Lee said, okay, why don't we run three and then we'll see how we feel at the end and maybe we can keep going. So they start running. They run, they, they run three, no problem. And then after, you know, the third mile hits, uh, he says, okay, let's keep going. Let's keep pushing it. I feel good. So they start running. After a couple more minutes, though, John Little is dying out there. Okay, he's like sucking wind and stuff. And he says, you know, Bruce, I got to stop. Okay, he says, I, I don't think I could run anymore. Uh, go on without me. Um, if I keep running like this, like my heart's going crazy, I think I could just have a heart attack and die. And he thought that Bruce Lee would say, no problem, right? Slow down. I'll just keep going. I'll meet you in the end. Or he thought he might encourage him, right? You can do it. Keep going, right? It's only a little bit longer. But when he said, I think I might die, and he was kind of joking, Bruce Lee turned around and looked at him and he just said, all right, die then. And then kept running. Now, this made him so mad that he ran the next two miles fueled by anger, at the end of, at the end of this run, right, after they finished five miles, he asked Bruce about it. He said, what's wrong with you? Right? He wanted to challenge him. He said, why would you say that to me? And Bruce basically said, I knew you could do it for one. And then two, if you can't push yourself just a little bit beyond your boundaries, why are you even running? Or how about this? Why are you even living if you can't push yourself? He was so offended by what Bruce said, but Bruce knew that this was what he needed to hear. And the preacher, he he doesn't care so much about our feelings per se. He wants us to kind of get in our feelings, so to speak. He wants us to question. He wants us to rethink certain things. He wants to elicit a response from us. And the main thing he wants us to question is our lives. So this book, I would encourage you to read this book this week. If you read two chapters a night, you can finish the whole thing by next Sunday. But this book, it's going to approach, it approaches uh, the same questions as the rest of the Bible, but from a totally different angle. And we'll get into why as we go along. But understand, you're going to hear things in this series where you're going to ask, how could this even be in here? Wasn't there an editor who checked? And that's a good thing. We need to question our lives. 
You know, I remember hearing once someone share about how when he was in his early 20s, uh, his dad got sick and he passed away. And in your 20s, you're still pretty young, you know? You're not a kid, but you're still pretty young. And he said he remembers he went to the mortuary with his mom and his brother, his older brother, and uh, his dad's body was there. And then the guy who was working there, he, you know, he said the customary thing. He said, sorry for your loss. You know, we, we feel really bad about this. Then he said, hey, if you want to write something down that we could kind of put uh, next to kind of the casket or put near him, just to remember your dad by, just something about him that you remember, uh, why don't you write it down? And it's just, you know, a nice thing for the family to do. So they said, sure, we'd love to do that. You know, thank you for honoring you know, our, my father, whatever. And they gave him a piece of paper like the size of a fortune cookie paper. And he says he remembers thinking, my dad died and that's it? Right, his entire life, decades of life, years and years and years of life, everything he worked on, all the relationships that he had, every, every single thing that he ever said or talked about, you want us to write down something on this small piece of paper to encapsulate my dad's entire life? Look, the truth is life and death are more cruel than any words the preacher could ever write. And if his words force us to consider and reconsider what would be written on our piece of paper, then Ecclesiastes is doing its job. Because this life is going to be over before you know it. So the argument, the words of the preacher, second, the author, who would write such a book? What kind of person, who hurt you, right? Who wrote this book? Verse one, the words of the preacher, what to say? The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Who is the preacher? Who is Koheleth? Well, the book is technically anonymous. He never actually gives his proper name. He leaves many clues about his identity. First of all, he says he is the son of David. Now, we spent a lot of time with David. David is the man after God's own heart. He is the true king of Israel. But David had many sons. He says here, though, that he is also the king in Jerusalem. So only one of David's sons actually became king. Only one was heir, and that was Solomon. Now, some people argue, well, every single descendant of David who sat on the throne called himself a son of David. That is true. But notice, if you look at uh, chapter 1, verse 12, if you have your Bibles open, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And if you know your history at all, your Old Testament history, I don't want to get down into the weeds too much, but if you know your history, we know that Solomon split the kingdom, or because of his actions, the kingdom was split. So the king of Israel ruled elsewhere, okay? Not in Jerusalem after Solomon. So this book has traditionally been attributed to Solomon. All the clues seem to point to him. There's other evidence. Solomon was given supernatural wisdom from God. Look at Ecclesiastes 1.16. He said, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. He had greater wisdom than anyone else. Solomon was also extremely blessed by God. No one was ever more prosperous. No one had more money or more stuff. And then look at Ecclesiastes 2 verses 4 through 8. He said, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. 
I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. This guy withheld nothing from himself. And maybe you noticed, he said, you know, uh, and some people point this out. uh, If you listen carefully, he said he had way more than anyone who came before him in Jerusalem. And you might say, okay, well, it can't be Solomon, because Solomon was literally the second king of Israel in Jerusalem. Saul didn't even reign in Jerusalem. It's kind of like saying you're top three, but there are only two, right? It's not really a flex. But the thing is, Jerusalem was a conquered city. There were kings in Jerusalem way before Israel moved into the promised land. Solomon could be comparing himself to every king who came before, Israelite or not. And there's one more piece of evidence. Proverbs 1, chapter 1, starts this way. It says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. It's almost the exact same structure. Instead, but in Proverbs, instead, he puts his name. In Ecclesiastes, for some reason, he wants to call himself by the preacher. He wants to wear the hat of Koheleth. So while the author wants to be called the preacher, I think it's pretty clear from the text and from tradition that it is Solomon who wrote this book. And we'll refer to him as both throughout this series. We'll try to call him the preacher. That's what he wants to be called. But he is Solomon. And knowing that he is Solomon sheds light on what this book talks about. Because who was Solomon? Like I said, he withheld nothing from what he wanted. But you got to hear about some of the things that he had. Uh, in 1 Kings 10, this is what it says. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. That's a red flag if I ever heard one. Right, 666? Just give one away, man. Besides that, which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the West and from the governors of the land, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. There's a word that keeps repeating in here. When you do Bible study, pay attention to the repetition. It's gold. He's filthy rich. In fact, it says that he was so rich that silver was basically worthless in his day because everything was gold. Then you skip down a little further in the chapter. The King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. The queen of Sheba travels all the way from Sheba to hear what he has to say. And every single person, every single king, every single royal uh, person who was interested in Solomon, they brought his present, brought him presents, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. Chapter 11 tells us that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's what he's famous for. He had everything that you could want in life. He had money. He had luxury. He had power. He had sexual experiences. He had servants to take care of his every need. He had monkeys for some reason. He had everything people chase after, except for monkeys. For real, I don't want that at all. And maybe you say, okay, I don't want some of these other things as well. Right? Good for him, but you know, I'm into different things. Let me tell you a story. I knew a guy from church who, for as long as I knew him, he wanted to be married. I didn't quite know this, but he did want to, okay? As long as I knew him, from the second I met him, that was his goal. 
And he had a lot going on for him. He was very successful, you could say, in the world's eyes. He had a really good job. He was probably the envy of many people uh, in the church for what he owned and kind of the station in life and, and the acclaim and all of that, the power, the influence. But that's not what he cared about, at least not truly. All of that stuff didn't really matter to him because he wasn't married. He wanted companionship. He wanted someone to love and to be loved by. He wanted that security. And when I knew him, he was really involved in church. He spent a lot of time with people. He, he served. He learned. He grew. Or so I thought. But then he met this girl. She wasn't a Christian at all. Um, but they clicked. There was a spark. And all of a sudden, all of his attention, all of his time, all of his effort, his entire life was transferred. It was collated into her. And again, there's nothing wrong with being married per se, but you could see how everything was directed in this one direction. It became his life. And we're all like this in different ways. We all want something, even if it's completely different than what someone else wants. Maybe you have what someone else desperately wants, but for you, you're like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I have this job that I hate. Maybe you live uh, in this small house and maybe everything else is good, right? There's a lot of love in your house. You have a great family, uh, but you think about having a nicer house, a bigger house all the time. You're always going to Zillow. You're always shopping on Instagram, uh, window shopping for different houses in the area, thinking about moving, even though you like your job. And then there's someone else who looks at you and says, I would trade my house in an instant. I would be homeless if I could just have kids. It's a circle. It's a vicious cycle. What makes Solomon unique is that he literally had it all. There's not one person that he envied in the world. And yet he's the one who says all is vanity. See, we got to understand that Ecclesiastes is not sour grapes. It's not the bitter words of someone who tried so hard and failed. These are the words of someone who succeeded in every single metric. He's not trying to convince himself the best stuff we all want isn't that great in order to justify his failure to get it. He's talking about uh, things that he has experienced and found wanting. What we have to understand is that Solomon had the ability to pursue anything at any time. You got to think about that for a second. Think about that ability, that power, that access. And it sounds like a dream life to me in some ways. Doesn't it to you? If you had the means to change, you solve your biggest problem in life right now, doesn't that sound nice? You want to remodel the kitchen? Spend as much as you want. Hire the best architects. You want a brand new truck with every upgrade possible? Just go to the dealership and buy one. You have infinite money. You want to own a second house in the mountains and a third house in Hawaii? That's easy. It's easy. You want a lot of people to like your photos all of a sudden on Instagram? You want to be invited to everything, even though you're going to say no. You want to have people constantly talk about how great you are, how smart you are, how gifted you are. Do you want people to envy you? Don't lie. If we allow our imaginations to shift into gear, there are a ton of ways each of us feel we can make our lives better if only we could get that one thing or two things or ten things. And this is why some of us work so hard, why we strive. Because we know it's not going to happen by magic. Right? We're not going to find a genie or something like that. So we work. We work to build our reputation. We work to get a better job. We work to get more money. We study more. 
We learn more. We invest more. We strive. We pour ourselves into certain things. You know, I heard a dancer, this is funny, this past week telling this story. And at the end of the story, this person quoted Ecclesiastes. Let me tell you, this dancer was really into dancing as dancers are. And uh, I guess this dancer and their group of friends, they booked the gig of a lifetime, this dance performance. This is not Eric, okay, by the way. <laughs> they booked the gig of a lifetime. They loved dancing. And for this performance, they poured everything they had into it. They said literally blood, sweat, and tears. Right? There's like blisters. People are crying because it's so hard. Uh, all the practice, the whole thing. Finally, the day comes, and they get on stage and, you know, they're nervous, right? But on the surface, they look calm and ready. And uh, they get up there, and they perform, and they dance their hearts out, and they kill it. Everything goes exactly like they pictured, like they practiced. And at the end, they finished to rapturous applause, and it was everything they thought it would be. And then they went backstage, and they're just kind of basking in the euphoria of the moment. And then it kind of hits all of them at the same time. The smiles kind of fade for a second. And then this one girl says, now what? What are we going to do now? What do you guys want to do? So they're like, I guess we'll go out to eat. And they went out to eat. And that was the whole story. And the dancer said, doesn't that sound kind of anticlimactic? That's how it was. For us, we, we strove and we strove and we strove. And at the end of the day, it was just a striving after the wind. And when I heard that, I thought, how providential. The phrase, a striving after the wind, comes from Ecclesiastes. Solomon had chased the wind to the four corners of the earth and nothing satisfied him. The question is, what are you striving for? Because I know you're striving for something. We all are. We're all stressing about something. We're all laboring for something. We're all wishing for something. Why, though? Why do you labor? Why do you stress? Why do you pour yourself out? You know, when I was younger, there was a song that was popular on the radio. I'm going to date myself as a very specific kind of millennial. And I'm not saying the song is a good song, but it captured kind of the attitude of an era. It was a song called Lifestyles of the Rich and the Famous. And the song goes, lifestyles of the rich and the famous, they're always complaining, always complaining. If money was such a problem, well, they got mansions. Think we should rob them? And uh, I'm not saying you should rob people or anything like that. But the whole thing was, we all know this already. Rich people are always saying, hey, money doesn't make you happy. Successful people are always saying it's not so great on the top. But none of us, almost none of us believe it. We feel like, okay, fine, you say that, you complain, but at least you have a mansion. I'd rather have that than live in my shack or whatever it might be. Even though we've heard it before, most of us still believe we can find happiness under the sun. Yeah, it didn't work for Solomon. Let's see if it can work for me. But Solomon doesn't say riches or wisdom are totally worthless. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say things like marriage aren't all they're cracked up to be. Meaningless might not be the exact right translation of Hevel. This is not the angle Solomon is taking, especially as you get deeper into the book. Rather, he wants to save us from the dead ends that he reached. He's not just saying, okay, I'll be rich, you be poor, just trust me, it's not that great, ha ha. 
There is happiness to be found. There is, as one author put it, joy at the end of the tether. The desire you have for something in your heart that will give you meaning to your striving, that's not necessarily bad. It just won't be found under the sun. And this leads to the third point, lastly, the aim. The aim. What is the aim of this book? What is the aim of this series? Why do we call this East of Eden? Well, look at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Solomon says that he was king in Jerusalem. He wasn't just a billionaire, a billionaire genius, playboy, philanthropist. He wasn't even just a king. Okay, he was the king of Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. He was the king of God's chosen people. And you have to understand the story here. Go back to Genesis 1. And you don't even have to turn there. Just go back in your mind to the beginning of the Bible. God created the world and it was what? It was good. Do you remember this? Every day he made something new. And every day he said it was good. It wasn't Hevel. And then at the end of the chapter, and God saw everything that he had made, everything. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Very good. The entire creation, the Hebrews had a word for this. It's the word shalom. Shalom means peace. It's a greeting. But shalom is not just the absence of conflict or war. Shalom is really the world as it should be, where everything is going right, where everything is clicking on all cylinders. And in this world of shalom, God made man and woman, and he placed them in a garden, and he called the garden what? Eden. Eden. So why are we calling this series East of Eden? Well, Eden was a paradise, a garden of perfection where human beings walked with God. And they worked the ground, but it wasn't toil. It wasn't drudgery because there was no curse. Everything was fulfilling. Okay, the job was perfect. The relationships were good. There was no longing for anything else. They were exactly where they wanted to be. But you might know the story. Satan in the form of a serpent tempted Eve with the one fruit God told them they must not eat. She ate, Adam ate, and what God had warned them about came true. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And as a consequence, the ground was cursed. Life became toil and trouble. And Genesis 3.24 says, and listen to this, God drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They were exiled to the east of Eden. And since then, metaphorically, and in reality, literally, we have lived east of Eden. We have lived away from a place where we are completely satisfied. We lived away from a place uh, where there are no longings. We lived away from a place where work is meaningful and fulfilling, where relationships are mutually enjoyable and helpful, where there's no pain or suffering or death. Because of the sin and the curse and the fall and our exile from Eden, life under the sun became heaven. This is the reality in which we live. And this is a book that takes an honest look at that reality. This is still the world God made. Don't get me wrong. God is still a creator. He, he is still over this world. There's still beauty and the glory of God is still declared by the skies above us. There are still glimpses of goodness. There are still echoes of Eden, you could say. But Eden no longer exists. And now our longing is for the shalom that just isn't there anymore. And Solomon was king in Jerusalem. Do you know what Jerusalem means? It means city of peace. 
Salam comes from Shalom, city of peace. And this was the burden of the people of Israel, the people that God chose to be kingdom of priests and the king in particular to be the people of God in a world east of Eden. What once was exile, when once there was exile, now there is worship. Remember, Solomon built the temple. God, who had been cut off from the people of the earth, came to dwell. His manifest presence descended into the Holy of Holies in the temple that Solomon built. When you read about what Solomon did, there's prosperity, there's beauty, there's wisdom, there's a peace we haven't seen since the fall. In First Kings, it almost seems like Solomon might, by virtue of wisdom and resources and sheer will, he might create a sort of Eden. Hey, not necessarily a garden, though there are fruit trees, but a place where every single one of your dreams and longings can come true. Where work doesn't have to be hard because you have servants. Where you don't have to toil and struggle against the ground because there are fruit trees that Solomon planted for you. No suffering, no pain, no existential dread. But you know maybe how this story goes too. Solomon was not wholly true to the Lord. His heart was led astray because in his heart of hearts, he was still a sinner. He was part of the fall. And despite his gifts, he was unable to transcend life under the sun, life east of Eden. And now we see him here in Ecclesiastes in his old age, a broken man, knowing death is near, knowing that his life had been one big striving after the wind. And he wants us to learn the lesson he learned. We, we can't go back to Eden. We can't. And that's what we're trying to do, isn't it? Maybe you never thought about it that way, but all of your striving, all the things that you're focused on, the things that consume you, in some way is chasing after the echoes of Eden. That's why we seek to avoid pain and discomfort so much. That's why we obsess over health and longevity, even though our bodies are passing away. That's why we switch from job to job to job, because hopefully the next one will just be perfect. You say, I'm not looking for Eden. Yes, you are. We all are. You want the world that is good. It's in us. Eternity is in our hearts, guys. You feel like it might be just around the corner, but Solomon says it's actually not around the corner. It's not anywhere under the sun. You have to look elsewhere. So where does Ecclesiastes lead us? What sermon is the preacher preaching. It opens our eyes. He opens our eyes to see the vanity of life under the sun because he wants us to look above it. Let me read to you Matthew 12, and then we'll close. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the teaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He's talking about his death and resurrection. But listen to this. He says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus left heaven above and was born into our world under the sun. The creator of everything, all things were made through him. He stepped into the pages of his own story. 
He lived the perfect life we could not live, life as it was always intended to be created, walking with God in perfect, uh, in per- in perfect righteousness. And then he died for us, bearing our sin and the wrath we deserve so that we could have life eternal, indestructible life. And then he rose from the grave, the first fruits of a new creation, for he is and he will make all things new. We can't go back, but there is somewhere we can go, or rather someone we can go to. We'll close with this. Why Ecclesiastes? Why is this even in the Bible? Rosie moved in with her dad because her parents divorced. It's kind of the backstory. She was living with her mom for a little bit. It wasn't quite working out right, so she moved in with her dad. And uh, it was an unfamiliar city, unfriendly school. Her dad was kind of a serious guy. You know, he's a professor at West Point. He was important. He was smart. She wanted to be close with him, but he was always working. She didn't really know how to bridge that gap. She knew that he was into ideas, that he liked to read, that he liked to talk about what he was learning. So Rosie decided the only way she could really bond with her dad was ask him questions. So she wrote down all the questions that she, she thought that he would want to talk about. And years later, when they asked her about it, she said, you know, the, at the end of the day, I didn't even really care about the answer. More, I just cared about having conversations with my dad. And that's really it. That's really it. Ecclesiastes is often caricatured as just a downer, a pessimistic, a depressing book, a book of impossible questions, a book that leads to doubt and discouragement and drifting away from God. But the truth is, the reality is, God inspired this book. God put this book in the canon. He knew exactly what he was doing. He gave us the questions to ask why. Well, it's a book that wrestles with the questions that we're sometimes afraid to ask. But not so much. He didn't put this in here, not so much to feed morbid curiosity or to cause us to doubt, but mostly because these questions ultimately can only be answered in one person. And he wants us to be drawn to that person. East of Eden, we will struggle with doubt and discouragement and disappointments. We will experience suffering. We will have to confront our mortality and the apparent meaninglessness of life and our deepest longings, the deepest longings of the human heart, the things all people want, belonging, purpose, joy. God wants us to know that they won't be found in philosophy or theory or great learning or reading. Of the making of books, there is no end. Rather, they can only be found in a person. Who is this person? He's a preacher. He is the son of David, and he is the king. But not the king of Israel and Jerusalem only, but the king of heaven and earth. Ecclesiastes is the book of questions that is meant to lead us to the one who is himself the answer. Not Solomon, but Jesus Christ. Augustine, the great church father, once said, I have read in Plato and Cicero sayings wise and beautiful, but never in either come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. It's okay to question and even to doubt to a certain extent. It's natural, but don't let your doubt lead to dead ends. It's okay to strive, but not after the wind. 
Rather, take these doubts and these disappointments and your tears and frustrations and your questions and your issues and all the things that plague you. Take your listlessness and your longing and your very heart and find your rest in Jesus, who alone can make everything new. You can make a million dollars and it won't mean a thing. But what does Jesus say? He says, even a cup of water given to one of these little ones in my name will last for eternity. Let's pray. God, we look to you. God, I pray that you would bless this study, that you would use it powerfully in our lives, that we might seek to live lives for your glory and not for ourselves. That we would remember eternity even as we toil under the sun. And God, I pray that you would help us to long for when things will be new. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.